Why, hello there. Fancy meeting you here. <laughs> My name is Sarah Buino, and I am the host of Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm also a therapist in the Chicago area. Why do I say that? I'm in Chicago. Chicago area, please, like I'm in the suburbs or something. <laughs> Anyway, I'm a therapist. I enjoy having conversations about deep things. And if you have joined us today, I'm guessing that you feel the same. And before I get to introducing today's lovely, wonderful guest, just wanted to share with you a couple ways that you can connect with me. So Patreon, if you've listened for a while, I've talked about it. If you haven't listened before and you don't know what Patreon is, it's a place where you can give money to people who provide things that you really appreciate. So if you are an appreciator of this podcast, I would greatly appreciate if you would be willing to donate any sum of money that would be in support of the podcast because these things ain't cheap, folks. You can donate as little as a dollar a month, and it truly, truly, truly is really, really helpful and supportive of continuing to produce a high-quality show, which is what I aim to do. So you can connect with me on Patreon. Just search for Conversations with a Wounded Healer there. Or if you want to connect with me on Instagram, which is my favorite place to hang out on social media, I am at Head Heart Therapy. So you can connect with me there. And then I am really interested to hear who you are interested to hear from on this show. I interview tons of people. I find lots of people randomly in the world. But I don't know all the cool people. And I'm betting that you know some cool people that you think I should talk to. So... If you know cool people and you want to introduce them to this cool people, you can email us at info at headhearttherapy.com and let us know who you think should be a guest. Basically what we do, we have this little form that people fill out so we can do a little bit of research and figure out who is a good fit for the show. But I just love to hear from you. So thanks for helping out. All right, on to today's amazing, wonderful guest. So Dr. Ashley Solomon is a licensed clinical psychologist and the founder of Gallia Collaborative. It's a behavioral health and empowerment organization dedicated to elevating the impact of purpose-driven girls and women. She blends her love for research, her commitment to social justice, and her hard-earned experience to support women at challenge points in their lives. This was a really, really lovely conversation, and I'm I'm not surprised. My dear, dear friend, Livia Budries, who I've talked about before, connected me with Ashley, and I'm so glad that she did. So I know that you're going to really enjoy this conversation as well. So please listen to Ashley Solomon. Hello, Ashley. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi, I'm so excited <laughs> to be here with you. I am excited to have you. So you you were recommended to me by one of my dearest and bestest friends in the whole wide world, Livia Budries. And we've actually talked about her a lot on this show because she re- recommends a lot of people to come. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and we have a Cincinnati connection, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we just start with you just telling people more about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Ashley Solomon. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I work in the realm of women's behavioral health. I own a practice called Gallia Collaborative and we do psychotherapy work with women. We also do leadership coaching and development with women create content, do workshops and seminars for organizations and groups, and just really focus on empowering women's impact in the world through developing their mental wellness. That sounds really lovely. And like, I'm feeling the container being built just the way that you talk about it. Thank you. Yeah, Uh, yeah. that feels really good. I'm going to do the cliche thing and just say I feel so 
amazingly fortunate to do this work. It's Mm -hmm. so restorative and empowering and all of the things to me. And I literally do have that feeling often. I mean, there are plenty of bad days, of course, but Mm -hmm. that feeling often of like, is this real life? But do I really Mm -hmm. get to do, get to work with these like incredible people and do this work in this way? It's a cool feeling. I'm imagining that you, like I have had a lot of, there's just been a lot of stuff coming up for clients right now. And so I've, I found myself doing like more intensive supervision and I keep coming to this, like clients will truly never know like how much we love them and how much we pour into caring for them. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. I often wonder if clients imagine us to be like shedding the tears that we do and Mm-hmm. Actually, can I share a little story with you? Yes. It just came up when you said that. Please. So I don't think this is divulging too much, but I have a client who had been struggling with infertility for a couple of years and had been, you know, we had been working together for about the last year and she actually got pregnant recently, spontaneously. So it was just this really like wow. miraculous, amazing thing and had really good scans and seen the heartbeat and and then lost the baby last week. And it was just, it was devastating. I mean, devastating to me on just like such a profound level. In part, I have had a miscarriage and so could just like Mm. so resonate with that feeling. So she ended up needing to have a DNC at the end of the week to address the miscarriage. And so long story short, she was, I knew she was going to have this procedure on Friday and Mm. All week long, she was just really like on my mind and heart and thinking about her. And then Friday night, a neighbor had invited us over to meet a new neighbor in our neighborhood, obviously. And so he had introduced me to this woman and we start talking and she ends up telling me that she's an anesthesiologist. And so we just started talking about people's emotions as they come in Mm. and out of anesthesia, which is really interesting to hear from her. She was saying how people often whatever their kind of emotional state is when they go under tends to be like what happens when they come out. And that Mm. oftentimes if someone's crying when she puts them under, that they'll be crying still. Like those tears Mm. will still be as fresh, even if it's like hours later. Wow. And so we were just talking. I was like, oh, and she, so she started to tell me about this case she had had that afternoon of this woman who had lost a baby. And this had been the case where just the tears were so fresh. and. Long story short, without violating anything, (laughs) I swear we came to learn that it was my patient that she had been with, the same person. Wow. And we just sat there and I just started, I mean, I couldn't help myself but cry right? because I looked at this woman and I I said, I'm so grateful that you could be there with her today because I got to know her and what a special woman this anesthesiologist was. I don't know. There's something about it. it just brings tears to my eyes right now. Yeah. And I ended up telling my patient about it. And she was saying how she was just really blown away at this like connection when I told her mm. about this just a couple days ago. And she said she was the only person, the anesthesiologist, who was there with me in my pain. There were all these mm. men and not because they were men, but men, mm. surgeon and, you know, resident and that she said just made her feel so dismissed. But this one mm-hmm. woman, and she had mm-hmm. wanted to know her name. And she oh asked my her gosh. husband to even look it up. It was just this like full circle. And I said, oh I met her and we cried for you. And it was just, I don't know. There was just, I felt like that was one of the moments speaking of that I was like, this work is so powerful beyond anything I could, I don't know, I've imagined it to be. And that there's just this like connection among these women who could hold space in all these different ways from like 
putting you to sleep, to processing your pain, to, it was just really cool. So it was a really neat experience this week to get to just feel that. That's just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Like small world kind of stuff that really like shows us our connection. It was cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you are a spiritual person at all, but that just feels like higher power synchronicity stuff to me. Totally. I, I'm a conflicted, ambivalent spiritual person, but I feel like the more that I pay attention, the more Mm -hmm, spiritual mm -hmm. I get. So I'm on, I'm definitely on my personal journey, but things like that, I'm like, okay. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When you're paying attention, that's that's when you kind of yeah. maybe feel a little bit of a spiritual tingle. Yeah, I feel a lot of spiritual tingles. I think my challenge is still being in the process of recovery from my Catholic upbringing. Yeah, more than anything, and still kind of defining, like when I was growing up, the idea of being spiritual, like spiritual but non-religious, was mm-hmm. was basically well, that's just an excuse to be nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there was no context for me for that. I didn't mm-hmm. know anyone. I mean, to be perfectly honest, probably didn't know anybody who wasn't Catholic. Right. Mm-hmm. In my really early years. And so I don't feel like or I didn't feel like I really had exposure to like other ways of thinking about or interacting with faith or spirituality. And so I feel like mm-hmm. that's been more of a so then there was this period of just rejecting it all. Mm. And then like inviting it back in through things like yoga and just Mm -hmm. connection with like nature and self. And so I feel like I'm definitely in this space of wanting to figure out what that is for me and to be able to put some words to it. But yeah, but I definitely have a lot of tingles. So I know that there's, there's work to do there to figure out what that is and looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't really able to even start like that inquiry for myself until my parents died because my mom was Mm. so, Mm-hmm. religious and I don't know like I almost feel too like we're both from Cincinnati essentially and then moved here and you've since moved back and yeah I don't know I found so many more religious people in Ohio than I've met here in Chicago and I don't know if it's because I've cult- already cultivated a different life here or sure, if that's yeah. the reality I mean there's millions of people here so I'm sure there are plenty of religious people right they just right. don't hang out around me I guess <laughs> right yeah yeah no I mean I definitely it's Cincinnati is such an interesting place. You know, mm-hmm. there's definitely still a lot of more conservative traditional roots, but it's mm-hmm. also, I mean, and, and like any place, it depends where you go and sort of how you're defining the community and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But I would say, I mean, there are strong religious communities, particularly, like I said, Catholic. And I also realized I went to, reflecting back, I went to Catholic grade school, high school, mm. college, and inadvertently graduate school even. Mm. Um, not that it was a secular program by any mm-hmm. means, but so then in, in moving to Chicago and starting to work, I remember like when people took off for a Jewish holiday, I was like, oh, oh, like whereas that would not have even been, I don't mm-hmm. know, on my radar. I'd overcome a lot of embarrassment and I think I protected myself from shame because I realized that it had just been a function of, you know, how sheltered and, you know, religiously and culturally sheltered I had been. But then even like finding myself really angry about that. And yes, I felt the same. Yeah, it's frustrating and feelings towards parents about that sort of thing mm-hmm. and empathy. Now being a parent, I recognize all the things I screw up on a daily basis. But right. 
I do try to think about exposure, of course, quite a lot, what I'm exposing my kids to, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard. It's all hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of parents and childhood, I'd love to hear your, how you became a therapist origin story. Mm. Start from the beginning. Okay. (laughs) I hate this question because I I don't hate it. I just, I struggle with it. I like often try to think about like, what's my story? And I guess there's... Mm -hmm probably different stories for different times and settings. Mm-hmm. So, so this will be the real one, I guess. So I was born to a single mom at the time. Mm-hmm. So my biological father wasn't in the picture initially. And then my mom met who became my dad, who adopted me mm-hmm. a couple of years later. So I, de- I definitely grew up with a father figure. But, but those kind of like really early years, I think were probably pretty formative to my focus in particular on women's empowerment. I was, you know, raised by this tribe of women being my mom Mm. and my aunts and my grandmother. And that really was foundational to kind of the way that I saw myself and what that, what that meant for me. And my dad was a very special person too, but Mm. but probably not just as central of a figure, to be honest, in my life. And Mm -hmm. my mom and I had pretty classic enmeshed relationship. And I think it's in some ways a really kind of classic therapist story in that I think, especially with her not having kind of initially that partner, um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was sort of her and I against the world. Mm. I became a bit of a stand-in, you know, counselor, support yeah. person, and relied upon a lot. And then I was just really fascinated. So I think that was sort of a role piece of that. And then I was just really fascinated with understanding things, with understanding how people interacted, mm. especially. So why people sort of made the decisions that they did and how they thought about things, but in particular, sort of how they treated each other and mm or the relational piece of that. And I was also a super, super nerd. And I would spend these summers with my grandma in this little tiny town. And there was literally like nothing to do except go to the library, which was like perfectly fine for me. I Mm. loved it. (laughs) And so I spent these like days at the library, like reading like Freud when I was, you know, seven. It was was really ridiculous. Sometimes I think, did, did no one think to tell me like, go outside, Ashley, (laughs) get some fresh air. Right. But I just like, I just wanted to know. I was just so Mm -hmm. like curious. I wanted to understand. So, so I think those are some of the early influences. And so I was like certain by the time I was like eight, I'm going to be a psychologist. I'm going to hear people out. And by the time I was eight, I was, you know, certain that this was my Mm -hmm. path and Mm -hmm. what I was going to do. And then during high school, I think a lot of that, a lot of that early stuff that I mentioned kind of caught up with me. I struggled with a pretty severe eating disorder, which was really, I mean, it was definitely an eating disorder, but really had its origins in like just really struggling with some pretty severe depression. But mm-hmm. as a kid, even younger than that, and, and certainly anxiety, but could never have labeled it as such. So all that mm-hmm. kind of came to a head as a, as a high schooler. And So by the time I got to college, I think I was maybe a little freaked out about, I had second thoughts about pursuing this path of of psychology. Mm. I think it felt like I was too deep in needing to do my own work. And so I declared my major as English and journalism because I knew that I simultaneously, I love to write and to Mm -hmm. like a big part of what I loved about the idea of doing therapy was just the stories and understanding people's stories and making sense of them and conceptualizing Mm. them. And and so I really loved that, but I couldn't get away from it. And so during college, I actually went to residential treatment sort of finally and finally sort of had a more intensive experience with 
putting this eating disorder to rest. And Mm. I was really fortunate that that was kind of what it took for me to like find recovery from that. And it didn't really linger after that. So I was able to come back to college. I took some time off college, went back to college and decided like, no, I've had kind of a chance to really do all this deep introspective work and really heal myself. And this is really what I want to do. So, Mm. so then I pursued psychology and I went to graduate school like right after college and knew that I wanted to work with eating disorders in part because of my own experience, of course, and how they had sort of shown up in my family forever. And because of just the way that I was drawn to working with women, of course, eating disorders happen for boys and men mm-hmm. and people of all genders, but at least in terms of who seeks treatment, right? Mm-hmm. predominantly women. And so it felt like a really good fit for my interest in understanding sort of the medical side of things and the psychological side of things. So eating disorders, it's an area that I have zero experience with, aside from my own food stuff, which everybody, I think everybody has something on a spectrum. In the addiction world, it's like everything is on a spectrum. So I find it so interesting, the similarities and the differences between addiction and eating disorders. I also found it interesting too, that that level of insight. And I don't know how much of it was like that you were really connected to that, or if it's like looking back that you just like knew that you needed to do something else. And now you recognize just how deep that that voice inside was that said, no, you need to heal yourself first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I had that insight at the time. I think that that's definitely a, like looking back and being generous with myself about what was mm-hmm. going on. I think at the time it was just a sense of probably just fear. Like, what would that look like? But not really allowing myself to think through Mm -hmm. what would that look like? And why am I afraid of that? And sometimes I look back, I mean, I think age is a great teacher. And of course, (laughs) and, you know, Mm -hmm. time time. allows for a lot of that wisdom. (laughs) I like think back on like how uninsightful I was. And (laughs) at times I'm like, how did I function? Especially, I mean, I was in therapy. I mean, that that's a gift, I should also say. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in that, like, my mom took me to therapy probably for the first time when I was four mm-hmm. at that time because my great-grandmother, so my great-grandmother actually lived with us as well. Oh, wow. And, um, but she was in the process of dying. And so there were this intense, like, six months or so at the very end of her life where she lived with mm-hmm. us. And my mom had the, the real foresight to take me to, someone to kind of talk about and process those feelings even at age four because she could Mm. tell that you know it was just affecting me and yeah so it was so normalized as part of the process of healing and keeping yourself well or going through difficult times and then of course like at various points throughout my childhood and adolescence so I, I was definitely given the gift of therapy which I'm sure contributes to like how much insight I can have now in retrospect. But I just think back at the time and I was like, how could you not see? I mean, of course, we, we can't see it when we're deep into it, but mm-hmm. painful sometimes to look back on that, I think. Yeah. I just did this training actually this past weekend. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not particularly trauma trained. So this was something somewhat new to me. There's an assessment called Developmental and Relational Trauma, so DART, and there's a Hmm. kind of program called like Healing Our Core Issues, and it's about developmental and relational trauma, so those Mm -hmm, kind of early mm -hmm. experiences of what we got and didn't get as kids, and that was really, it was really eye-opening for me, even in, in the things that I thought I knew about my own 
childhood. You know, the things that I thought I had figured out, like, okay, I've closed the case on that one. It's sort of, as they say in this training, they talk about like, you tell your story. And one of the roles of the therapist is really to kind of rearrange the furniture and help you look Hmm. at the story from different angles. And, Hmm. you know, particularly things like, okay, if this was happening at the time with this caregiver, what was your other caregiver doing? Where were they? Why didn't they intervene? And just things like that. And so I should probably have given the caveat at the beginning of this. Recently, my furniture has been all rearranged and I'm like right in the midst of this like, okay, nothing's where I left it. And I'm trying to figure all that out. uh, We were kind of talking before we started. I know about it's a weird place to be when you're in the midst of your own work. Yeah. So what's the modality called? You know, it's funny because I spent four days in this training and I'm thinking, what do they really call it? (laughs) They're doing very bad marketing. (laughs) I know. The training is called, it's called the Healing Our Core Issues Institute. And it's Jan Bergstrom and Rick Butts have developed this training institute Hmm. based on, it's based on the work of Pia Melody, which I wasn't actually as familiar with her work. I learned about it through Mm -hmm. learning this approach, which I guess I would, I would consider it an approach. I mean, it's definitely not a manualized treatment. It's Mm -hmm. more of a framework Mm -hmm. for kind of understanding personality and character development, particularly with like self-esteem and boundaries and Mm -hmm. our ability to kind of moderate ourselves. And so I think there's a lot of applicability to addictions and eating disorder work. And well, it all starts from childhood trauma. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Just to, I guess, give a framework from a psychology lens. I don't know, from a more like professionally oriented lens, it was psychodynamic in nature, but I wouldn't call it psychodynamic, but psychodynamic in the sense that it was thinking about early childhood dynamics and how they influence the structure of our personalities and as they develop. But I think really focused on the fact that we can alter and change those things through some of that Mm -hmm. like inner child work and reparenting ourselves Mm -hmm. and kind of shifting things in our present day relationship. So it was a, it's a very hopeful model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm sure I'm not doing it any justice because I'm just like dipping my toe in. I did this four-day training. And the next part is doing like your own weekend Mm -hmm. intensive. So I got to gear myself up for (laughs) when I have the emotional capacity to do that. But Mm -hmm. that'll be next. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure listeners are wondering, like, when is Sarah going to mention NARM? Because this sounds a lot like NARM. Are you Mm. familiar at all? You know, I am not, but some, a few people in this training mentioned it several times. So I am not though. I really don't know what it is. It's another developmental healing modality that it's embodied too. So it's like, it's also a somatic modality at the same time. And yeah, I was telling you before we started, like the trauma chasm has opened for me and I have definitely been falling down the chasm because it's just like you said, exactly like I've known all these things, but the depth to which I know them now somatically and in an embodied way, it's just so much more painful. (laughs) Yes. You know, like I feel it so much deeper than I've ever felt it before. Yeah. This, I should say, has a somatic element, which that has been totally new to me, Mm -hmm. which I think maybe is not unusual in psychology as a discipline. Right. Mm -hmm. Either. I feel like other disciplines have really embraced somatic interventions a lot more. So I feel like I'm kind of catching up and had some intuitive awareness of Mm -hmm 
the importance of that component, but never really had training or like really a conceptualization for it until more recently. Probably, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe in the last like even year or so, mm-hmm. like starting to understand that. So then like doing this training where there was this heavy somatic component was, I mean, to what you're saying was like, oh, you can like feel that. That, mm-hmm. is, that is different. Because <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I've written this whole book and I can just shut it and put it over here. But then when I have to actually like embody it, ooh, that feels weird. Right. So that's been a whole kind of, I don't know, awakening for me personally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now I'm kind of hungry for more. Yeah. And the the way that we talk about it in NARM is essentially like a desire to connect with the authentic self and how the authentic self is like covered up. So as you were just talking about like this awakening, I'm I'm thinking of it's the it's the uncovering, right? And we have to like the trauma are part of the layers that we're peeling off in order to get to the authentic self. Yeah. I love that you said authentic self, just because that's sometimes I'll say essence. I don't know if it's the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I'll have to learn so much more about NARM, but you might love it. I know. I'm thinking I might because, <laughs> but just I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been doing some like Enneagram work too. Yes. Recently. What are you? Wait, let me guess. Yeah. Go for it. Mm, nine or two? No. Mm-mm. Damn it. No. I could see where you would think that from our conversation though. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, All right. What are you? Job. Tell us. I'm a six. Okay. All right. And actually a six with almost a three. I don't like bringing up the three part. <laughs> so I'm a three. Are you? Oh yeah. my gosh! Of course, my husband's a three. My husband's yeah. a three, yeah. which apparently is a very rare combination to have a six and a, a six three and three. Married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's really opened my eyes. Ironically, I took the test, the ready, like mm-hmm. when I was in residential treatment for this eating disorder. Really? Not as part of treatment because this like other patient who I became close to like studied the Enneagram and had this book. And I was, it was like Mm -hmm. this, you know, totally at that point, like no one was really talking about, at least no one in the world I was in talking about it at all, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. Not quite that long. And it was so funny that when people started talking about it within the last few years, a lot more was like, I remember something like that. I remember it was really cool. So I just, I don't know. I felt this like affinity for it because it had come into my life at this really transformative time for me. So I like went back and I don't know how I had this, but I like had written about it in like this journal. I was in treatment. And I, at that point I had identified myself as a one and like everything I had heard is like, you don't really change. Like, you know, this is your essence. Mm -hmm. I really thought about that a lot. And realize, I don't know what Enneagram experts would say, but I feel like that's how like disconnected from myself I was, you know, that that's how I kind of conceptualized myself then. And I can totally see how, I mean, in the midst of this restrictive eating disorder, being the perfectionist and all these things. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I like made total sense, but I was like, that was actually never me. And that was like, has been like a cool Mm-hmm. uncovering or whatever in this mm-hmm. process it's like yeah that was that was never authentic yeah wow well what like what are you doing you said you're like working with it are you doing a program are you studying with someone yeah because like, I probably want to do that <laughs> yeah so I I mean just mostly like self-study reading a couple books listening to podcasts mm-hmm. I went to a workshop pre-covid with my husband And he had actually done an Enneagram workshop through his work. So he had some knowledge of it and knew what his number was. And then we went to this workshop together. And 
I will say that it has been really transformative in our relationship because we've been in couples therapy at various points, like when different kids have been born and things like that. (laughs) And like stress points and I don't know. And I mean, in good therapy with good people and it just never really, I don't know, it didn't really move us forward, I would say. There's probably lots of reasons for that. But the Enneagram has been sort of the first thing that we have found as a couple. Mm. And I don't know if anybody knows about the Enneagram and threes and sixes and whatever. And like a six myself, who's kind of almost a three, two. So if you imagine two threes that are like very avoidant and whatever, um, we had never really found anything like this where we could connect around a common language. So it's given us Mm. this really common language and understanding of each other in a way we've never had before. And so I'm actually really, I don't know if any of your listeners out there, I really want to find like a relationship therapist or coach Mm -hmm, or someone mm -hmm. who works with the Enneagram with couples. That's one piece of the work I really want to do. I feel like, okay, we finally found something that really helps us understand each other in a new way. And I want to like move forward with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then with my team at work, so I have a group practice business that I own and and we're a fairly new team to each other. And so in two weeks, we're having the person that did the workshop by my husband and I went to is coming and doing a workshop for our team because I think it's such a great tool for working together collaboratively and just and just as a clinician, kind of just another, of course, Mm -hmm. just another way of understanding yourself and what you bring to situations and relationships. So for sure. I might have a recommendation for you. I'll have to check and make sure she does couples, but she's an Enneagram expert. And mm, I would love that. Really special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's shift into the healer talk. I'm, I'm curious your answer to the question of whether or not you consider yourself a healer. Yeah. I knew that question was coming at first. <laughs> and I, like, I've been thinking about it all day. And I was thinking, gosh, I probably wrestled with that. I think my my final answer that I came to <laughs> by three o'clock today was uh-huh. no, I don't think I would define myself that way. And I think why is to me, I think just the term feels like it implies a level of power that I don't feel like I have. I feel like it's much more of a co-collaboration mm-hmm. process and that if anybody's like the healer, it's the person healing Mm -hmm. in the process of healing. Not that I dislike the term. I don't have this aversion to it. So that's why Mm -hmm. I had to really think Mm -hmm. about it because it's not like, it's not aversive to me, but I don't think it doesn't resonate with what I, how I see myself, which then of course led me to this question of like, okay, so what's the word? Like, what do I, how do I define myself? Yeah. Good question. And I might have to come back to you on that one because Mm -hmm. it took all my, my energy today to think about (laughs) what I thought about healer, but yeah, I don't know. I thought about words like guide or mm-hmm. collaborator, things mm-hmm. like that. But I think I think my answer is I, I'm not sure yet. But it's kind of a good mental exercise for myself. Mm-hmm. I also hate the words like, because I, am, I think I mentioned before, so I do psychotherapy. And then I also do sort of separately this leadership coaching. And I personally hate the word coach. I don't know if it's because I was terrible at sports and it just was <laughs> like sports connotation to uh-huh. me and so it's just automatically aversive like I think mm-hmm. about like you know mm-hmm. put me in coach or something I just hate <laughs> it but then I think about using other words and it, it's like with anything you got to think about like are people going to understand you know right. and sort of walking that line so mm-hmm. I mean I haven't come up with something totally better yet I don't know consultant maybe that sounds too that sounds businessy 
Yeah, a little too like I'm wearing a <laughs> suit, but <laughs> right. I work on the terminology, but that's uh-huh. a really good question about the healer part. Yeah. Do you use that term to describe yourself? The way that I frame it, I think that everybody is a healer. And I think that some of us are just awake to that part of ourselves and some aren't. So I, too, believe that obviously it's co-collaboration and, you know, it's not just me healing and fixing. And and that's that's what I found. The more that I ask this question, it's not about it's not necessarily about what the word even means itself, but how you're defining the whole process of healing. So that that's kind of how I, I frame it. And so I'm not going to put healer on my business card or on my LinkedIn profile. But, yes, I do think I am. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I like that idea. We all have this capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, how awake are we to it? Yeah. How about a wounded healer? How do you feel about that? I love the concept. It feels like it puts us on a similar playing field mm-hmm. as yep. you know, people that we serve and work with in a way that maybe other things don't. So I think just the acknowledgement of that has been powerful for me in my own life. Mm-hmm. I think I used that term actually this weekend in the midst of this training. Mm. Like it came up really organically that I saw myself that way. And I kind of see our, I don't know, like our community of mm-hmm. healers, wounded healers. Yeah. And it's really interesting. So much of my experience has been sort of deep within the world of eating disorder treatment. And I think that that's a place where there's this really like ambivalent relationship with the concept of being a wounded healer. Mm. I probably don't have enough experience outside of it to be able Mm. to accurately compare it to other fields, specializations. But my impression is that it maybe has the most ambivalent relationship or not even ambivalent, like fearful relationship with like owning our own stuff, the people within Mm -hmm. And there's probably lots and lots of reasons for that. Lots of ones and threes. And that's <laughs> perfectionism. Right. And not wanting to acknowledge like the broken parts. And and there's a lot of systems in place that are really set up to prevent, I think, us from going there. Mm-hmm. And so I just think, yeah, the field's kind of built around a lot of systems that are afraid of what that will mean or what mm-hmm. starting to acknowledge that on any like bigger scale yeah. will mean. And so it's really uncommon to talk about it in any kind of open mm. way. That's so interesting. Yeah. Like in a way that I don't see in substance use in quite the same way or in, you know, or yeah. any other kind of clinical presentation. That's what I was going to say. I, I almost feel like addiction and substance abuse are on other ends of the spectrum where it would be great if there were a middle point because there's there's so much focus in substance abuse about having been a patient and the field overall in general i think there's too much reliance on that and then focus on what individual recovery looked like instead of really looking at what each individual patient needs now and then on the opposite side i'd see this perfectionism this constriction this like closed yeah and so it's like both of them need to come to the middle to this more collaborative place right so within you know the eating disorder field i spent the last five years or so chairing the experts by experience committee of the academy for eating disorders and Mm. the academy for eating disorders was founded as a research group Mm. it's very large now not clinicians researchers as well as 
advocates and people with lived experience, although that's a much smaller part of the organization. It's definitely still more research and clinically oriented. But we were we started a we call the experts by experience committee a few years ago to really try to bring in the voices of people with lived experience and whose mm-hmm. you know lives are actually affected by the research that's being done and all of that. And I mean it's still to hear you talk about like where things maybe this over-reliance, it's really interesting because we'll have these intense debates about whether we shouldn't hire someone who's had experience with one of these illnesses, you know, for mm. 10 years or 15 years or like, geez, there's just some really intense restrictions on mm. the conversation. And so there's definitely this strong movement to bring things more to that middle ground that you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a really good thing. And I can see how at times it goes too far is probably not exactly the right way to mm-hmm. say it. But mm-hmm. I don't know, even as I'm saying this, I realize that to change a philosophy and a way of doing things. I think you have to really put yourself out there in a different way than if you've already established like the middle ground as a norm. So we're really trying to swing the pendulum. And so that's part of the work that we've done on this committee is really trying to be like really loud vocal advocates for just even acknowledging that there's value to lived experience, which in the eating disorder world, I would say there's been very little value placed on it. And that's so interesting because Again, like within the addiction world, peer recovery support is the name yeah. of the game, right? Like that's what yeah. 12 step is all about. So yeah. and there are 12 step meetings for eating disorders, too. So it's it's just so interesting. Yeah. Well, so I will share with you that this is literally so, you know, I have let me see. Let me think about holding. So I've been in <laughs> the field. Um I mean, I've been in this field for 15 years, and this conversation is the first time I've ever said that I had an eating disorder in, like, something that will be public. Wow. Yeah. So just to share, and I mean, I've had a million places where that would have been probably even helpful or appropriate or welcomed. Mm. And I, like, decided intentionally to do that when I was, Mm. like, learning more about your podcast. I'm like, okay, well, I'll be a really... shitty guest if I was like, okay, but just, I mean, for context, like I, yeah. you know, this has been my life's work and I've mm. literally never, I've never said that to a supervisor that I had in all those years of working, never said it wow. as a supervisor, which I have a lot of like regret about now. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely see with the work of things like these committees and initiatives and, you know, just the tides turning, even just yeah. culturally that yeah. I, you know, I know that that's changing. It's probably what allows me to feel like, no, mm-hmm. I, I really want to embrace this now. So it's an interesting difference. Yeah. Well, thank you for choosing our audience to share this with. That's really, it's truly very touching. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for holding space for that. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I really feel like you and I need to be friends now and talk all the time because I just want to keep talking to you. But (laughs) I'd love to. Can you share with listeners how they can find you and learn more about you and your work? Sure. Yeah. Probably the best place is on Instagram. Yes. Um, Oh, my God. Following right now. Go. (laughs) So it's at Gallia Collaborative. Mm -hmm. So G-A-L-I-A Collaborative. Mm -hmm. And then GalliaCollaborative.com is our website. And 
we do these really cool, I think they're really cool circles, which are essentially like small groups of women who are connecting around something, whether it's infertility or do a binge eating group or non-clinical sort of things too, like growing a business. So Mm -hmm. we do these circles that are just super powerful. So if anybody's interested in kind of being part of a small kind of tight-knit community, check those out. Wonderful. Is there anything else you want to share with listeners that we didn't get to today? Oh, no. I think I spilled my guts. So (laughs) (laughs) great. No, it's really been really nice and safe and honest. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Me too. So much. I can't wait to continue offline. I'm so happy that I got to talk to Ashley. When I had that conversation, it was so nourishing with her. So I really hope that you enjoyed listening as well. And thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.